Well, here we are um, at the beginning of Daniel chapter 6. And before we get into it uh, today, I want to pray for us. And I want to do that in a way that perhaps uh, you may not have uh, done before. Uh, this is something we've done in our staff time a uh, couple, two or three times. Um, and, uh, and I thought it would be a great way to start. And so uh, what I want us to do in our homes, and you, get, you have to decide whether you want to go with this or not, but I thought it'd be fun, and this is a great way to sort of teach uh, young children uh, how to access uh, the presence of God, the joy of the Holy Spirit, uh, that he's with us all the time, and uh, we can access that. And what we do, so we, um, we create with our arms a barrel like this, and that barrel represents, if you like, the new wine. It represents the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to uh, form our arms into a barrel like this. And what we're going to do is, uh, this is one of the ways we can teach kids how to enjoy the presence of God and welcome his spirit and just be kind of drained in, in more measure to be kind of that sense of overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Um, and so we do this and we, we think of this as a barrel of new wine, the barrel of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to dunk our heads in it. And um, so I'm going to go for it. And uh, when we dunk our heads in it, we do it in a, a joyful way. So I will go Woo! as I do it. And, and then we come up. And um, my prayer as we do this is that uh, the Holy Spirit will fill us afresh. Um, and I think I always need a, a touch from heaven. So um, as we begin our time together this morning, uh, let's try this. And, um, and it's just, again, it's a, like a prophetic act. Um, and I think the Holy Spirit loves uh, to have fun uh, when he interacts with us and almost play with us as well so here we go let's um and maybe the Nazarite boys will join in with me as they're filming let's uh uh get our arms out as a barrel and we're going to enjoy the presence of God and before we get into it I'm going to have another dip Holy Spirit, we invite you into our homes this morning. We welcome your presence among us and we say yes and amen to your plans and your promises. And we say yes and amen to your presence in our lives this morning. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I didn't introduce myself. My name is uh, Jim Waddell. I'm one of the uh, associate clergy, associate vicars here in the parish of Chanctonbury. And today, as I said before, we're looking at Daniel chapter 6. I think James said uh, perhaps one of the most famous Bible passages uh, there are. It, you know, we, we all heard this story when we were young, I would imagine, and we'll be very familiar with it. Um, but let's uh, just bring us up to speed quickly because James last week shared from Daniel chapter 4 and we're jumping a chapter. That's not because we don't like Daniel chapter 5, it's because we're trying to fit everything into a timeline. Um, but what happens in Daniel chapter 5 
um, is we, we come into the contact with a new king. So Nebuchadnezzar finishes well, and, uh, and then Daniel 4 ends the, the sort of uh, in a good place, but we don't hear about Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel again. And we move to Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar, which is the Babylonian name that Daniel has, but Belshazzar. And he's another king um, who doesn't really follow the Lord. And uh, you know that phrase, the writings on the wall? Well, it comes from Daniel chapter 5, because you may remember that a finger comes along and writes on the wall. And it writes uh, basically numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Uh, is effectively what it's saying. And so it's a message that has to be interpreted. Daniel comes in to interpret it. And basically he says to Belshazzar, your days are numbered um, and your kingdom will be divided. And instantly that evening, um, Belshazzar's reign comes to an end because the Persians and the Medes come in and they take over Babylon. And then we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 6, with a king who's named as Darius. Now we don't really know who Darius is. There's two main theories. One is that it's Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, uh, or Cyrus the Persian, also known as one of the uh, great uh, Persian kings. Um, another is that it was his second in command. Um, but uh, most likely it's Cyrus. In Jan Daniel 6 verse 28, um, it talks about uh, da Darius, and at the end of that verse, if you look at it, it can be translated um, in the, uh, at the time of, of Cyrus or um, also known as Cyrus. So the language is unclear and we don't know. But I want to suggest that this could be Cyrus, but this is a Babylonian title um, given to him. So here we are in Daniel chapter 6, uh, a new king, um, King uh, Darius. And... Darius sets up the kingdom in a new way and he has these, uh, if we go to um, uh, verse 1, um, we talk about, uh, we hear about these satraps, there's 120 satraps and satraps were uh, people that were uh, put um, in sort of in charge of the security of the nation um, but they also were in charge of what's called um, the tribute, the king's tribute. Because um, in this time, uh, the, the kingdom was a tribute kingdom or a tribute empire. And what that meant was that those who were non-Persian uh, living in that land, they had to pay tribute uh, to the nation. And that would have been done through gold, through luxury goods, um, through wives, um, uh, maybe not wives. I think it was wives, though. Um, through animals and through slaves and, and different ways, you know, these tributes could be paid uh, to the kingdom. And that showed um, allegiance to the king. And so the satrap's job was to collect this tribute. And then over them were three um, effectively administrators. And they were a little bit like prime ministers, but there's a difference because they weren't sort of the first among equals uh, they were really the second in a hierarchy. And so they, they acted more like a president and their power was much more, you know, they had a lot more authority uh, to make decisions 
uh, and it didn't need to be done sort of in a democratic way so much. So these three administrators acted a bit like presidents and Daniel was one of these um, administrators. So that's kind of the setup at the beginning of the book. But then we read in verse 3 that Daniel conducts himself with excellence uh, and he demonstrates great political skill. So Daniel, we've seen over the previous chapters, uh, you know, in, in Daniel chapter 1, he um, goes through this process where he won't defile himself uh, with the food of the king and the food of, you know, the foreign uh, nation. He won't do that. And um, he and those close to him uh, have a special diet. And you'll remember that they, they are seen to be excellent among um, the kingdom of, of Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel has this excellence, but it's not just in um, his sort of ability with people, although it's there and, and with his sort of excellence uh, as, a, as a soldier, if you like, um, but he has great political skill and he becomes uh, sort of a favourite of the kings. We've seen that, haven't we? And here, um, King Darius has in mind to uh, promote him, to become the second in command. And that's what happens because Daniel has this excellence about him. And I just want to say on that, that, you know, as the people of God, we are called to excellence. And, you know, let's have a think about how we apply that in our lives, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's among our peers, uh, you know, whether that's in college or in school, uh, whether that's, uh, you know, in our families. As the people of God, we are called to a standard of excellence. And Daniel demonstrates this in a very powerful way. And we've seen it happen before, haven't we? We saw it happen with Joseph uh, towards the end of the book of Genesis, where he, uh, he operates at a different level with such honour, with such integrity, with such excellence. And uh, he serves those that he is under with such excellence that he's promoted. And, Dan, uh, and jo Joseph goes from prison to prime minister in one day. Um, you know, we read that in the book of Genesis, don't we? And here we, we're slightly different with Daniel, but he's being promoted yet again. And uh, because he works with excellence. And there's a message there for us that in whatever environment we find ourselves, we're to conduct ourselves with excellence. The people of God should be set apart. We should look different to the culture around us because we are called to this standard. And, you know, that shouldn't be an overbearing thing. It should be something we aspire to because his spirit lives within us. Now, of course, in verse four, we see that the satraps and the high officials, uh, which are the three kind of uh, presidential um, governors, well, there's two in this case, because Daniel obviously is one of them, um, and he's excluded from this for obvious reasons. But the two high officials, other than Daniel, and the satraps decide to hatch a plan because they don't like that this foreigner is potentially about to be promoted even above them. They're jealous. And so they hatch a plan to trap Daniel, don't they? 
Um, and when they go to Darius with this plan, it's almost like he's unaware that Daniel's missing. And he goes for it, doesn't he? He signs off on, on this plan. And it's almost as if Darius is a bit aloof, uh, sort of unaware that there's this, um, you know, his most trusted official is not there. And we know he's the most trusted because Darius wants to promote him to the highest position other than himself. Anyway, uh, so there's this unawareness, this aloofness about Darius. And we need to move quickly through now. Um, they hatch a plan and um, uh, they go to Darius and say that, you know, uh, if anyone should pray to anyone other than you for 30 days, they should be thrown to the lions. And so... Uh, Daniel finds out about this plan in verse 10, um, which shows, uh, you know, it shows that Daniel is um, attentive, that he, he, he knows what's going on, that he's not ignoring anything because he understands what's going on. He just chooses to not compromise, doesn't he? He chooses to not compromise, not to come under this thing. And, and although Daniel holds this um, incredible integrity and this honour towards the king, he will not bow down if, um, if he has to put somebody else's God or somebody else's image above God himself. That's the standard that he will not cross. And so uh, he prays as he always has in his, you know, I guess it's a bit like a flat or an apartment, in, in the, the, the palace, uh, it's high up, there's an open window, a latticed window. He prays in front of it, just as he always did. So he's not standing and going, whoa, like this. He's praying as he normally did. Probably, I think it says um, kneeling, but in front of this window so he could be seen. And of course, we know that the officials and the satraps saw him and they then report back to the king. And they, when they report back to Darius, they remind him, King Darius, did you not say uh, that no one should uh, pray to any uh, being other than yourself? And he says, absolutely. Um, Darius says, that's uh, what we set up. Um, and, that, and he reminds them that they'll be fed to the lions, doesn't he? So uh, they make an accusation. The, the satraps. Now, we don't know how many of them there are. We know that the two high officials are there um, outside of Daniel, but we don't know how many satraps are involved. Um, so it, it could be all of them, um, but it could be a, a few of them, a select few, or it could be a huge number of them. But however many there are, they make an accusation. And it says in verse 13, Daniel pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed. But we know that's not true. Daniel is about, was about to be uh, raised to the highest level possible for non-royalty, you know, and because he pays attention, because he honours the king. So it's not true that he pays no attention to the king, but he has chosen to not bow down to this uh, injunction. 
he's conducted himself, we know, with excellence. And as a result, the king plans to set him over uh, the kingdom, doesn't he? The whole kingdom. And he would not promote someone to a position like that who paid no attention to him, who did not honour him. So we know that this accusation is not quite true. And Darius knows it, tr- knows it to be true as well, which we'll come on to. Well, we'll come on to it right now, because what happens next is we read that Darius spends the whole day trying to work out a way out of this, uh, this injunction that he set up. He spends the whole time trying to get out of it and think of a way out. Uh, And he's so consumed by this that he fasts. He eats nothing. He can't sleep because he's trying to change things. And I want to put it to you that Darius would have known the story that had gone before in chapter 3. He would have known the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. We can absolutely take it as read the whole kingdom would have known about this story because it was extraordinary and Nebuchadnezzar made sure that everybody knew that the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego was uh, the one that we needed to follow because he set that up, didn't he, at the end of Daniel chapter 3. Yes, he fell from grace, but at the end of chapter 4, he humbles himself again and he says this God of Daniel is the one, uh, the true and living God. And so Darius would have known this. He would have known the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And I'm, I'm wondering if in this fasting, in this sleepless night that he has, if he's praying to the the living God for a change. Uh, We're not told, uh, but we know that he was certainly hoping for something to happen. And then in verse 16, um, Darius uh, says, uh, may your God, who you serve continually, deliver you. He says that to Daniel. Um, And let me just uh, mention the the den of lions or or the, the lion's pit. Because, you know, sometimes I think we may not realise how ferocious this thing, this environment is. Um, The Medes and the Persians were known for taking lions into captivity. Um, And they would put them in this sort of pit, which uh, we don't know fully whether that was underground. The text here um, implies that they are thrown down from a height. Um, because it says about the um, when those who'd risen up against Daniel were thrown into the pit, that before they hit the ground, the lions started to, you know, rip them apart. Um, so we know that they're thrown down. So there's some sense where the lions are in this kind of pit. Um, and, you know, but here's the thing. Some commentaries may suggest that these lions perhaps weren't hungry. But within the culture, we know that that's not true. The lion's den was probably the most feared punishment within the Persian environment. 
Um, within the Babylon environment, they had the great burning fiery furnace, didn't they? But here, it's the lion's den. And they didn't feed these lions because they wanted them hungry so that when they fed anyone to the lions, it would have been vicious because they would have been hungry and they would have torn these bodies limb from limb. It's ferocious, it's ugly, it's aggressive. And these lions were ferocious beings. They were rarely fed and whenever they got a chance to eat, they'd have gone <laughs> and pounced on their prey. And these lions are big, you know, they're uh, what did I read? 420 pounds, the average lion, which was pretty heavy. Uh, that's 30 stone. OK, um, they are from, you know, the tip of their head to the, the, the back side, not including their tail. The male lions are around six foot long. Um, at shoulder height, they are about four foot. So, you know, often we don't think about how big a lion is, but they, these are big ferocious muscly beings the king of the jungle as you know we hear that phrase don't we the king of the animal realm certainly within the persian culture and so darius is going through the night once daniel's in the lion's den just praying we hope i don't know if he's praying or not but he's certainly fasting he's certainly you know storming around his room hoping that something's going to uh, change and hoping that the living God will come through as he did for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And in the morning, we read that at first light, Darius makes haste, it says, doesn't it? Uh, in verses 19 and 20, he makes haste. So he's running uh, to the lion's pit as soon as dawn breaks. And he speaks out into the breaking dawn, which, you know, you wouldn't do because you're, you, surely you're thinking the lions must have torn Daniel apart. But there's something in Darius that is, is giving hope or, or giving a sense of could this be what God did for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego that he will do for Daniel. And he says, oh, Daniel. Servant of the living God. There we see it again. Living God. There's an acknowledgement about, you know, the power of our God. Servant of the living God. Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? There's, a, there's an expectation, even from a Persian king. Um, and uh, so he speaks out. Probably, you know, expecting a, an empty silence. But that's not, of course, what happens. His hope is realised. And the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego has come through for Daniel too. And, and, and Daniel responds, doesn't he? Um, uh, let me just turn there. Uh Daniel says to the king, verse 21, O king, live forever. There it is, the honour. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not 
harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. There's this thing that no harm has come to Daniel. And, you know, within the Persian system of punishment, there was a sense of if you have done no wrong, um, will the gods uh, spare you? You know, so um, there was that in part of their culture. And I think that's most likely the thing which is stirring in, in Darius. But it's informed by this prior story, which is so similar from uh, from Daniel chapter three. Um, and, you know, God has saved Daniel, hasn't he? It's 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 utterly extraordinary. Darius um has had to send Daniel before these lions, these ferocious lions that can tear a man limb from limb. But God has miraculously closed the mouths of these lions. He's abated their hunger. This is fully miraculous that the God of Daniel has come through yet again and intervened in an impossible situation the god of the impossible has come through yet again the king as i said when we looked at daniel 3 the king still has one last move you know the father always has one last move and um at the end of the book of daniel we we read that darius says um uh he says the, um, uh, that the true and living God that he says of him, he delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders. And here it is in the Old Testament. We are seeing the living God working signs and wonders. It, it's so exciting. And Darius responds by throwing the men who planned it all into the lion's den, doesn't he? Now, we don't know exactly how many, but we know that the two high officials are there and however many of the satraps that were involved are thrown into the lion's den too. But Darius doesn't stop there. It's brutal. He includes their families. He includes their wives and their children. Do you know, in our culture, we cannot fathom that. We think it's grotesque, it, and it is, it is grotesque, but we live in a very different culture. The, the thing that's going on here, and this is what they did historically, is that Darius cannot risk another rebellion coming against his kingdom, because a rebellion against Daniel, the highest official, the one whom Darius wanted to set above all the others, a rebellion against him is a rebellion against Darius himself. And he cannot allow future generations of, you know, grandchildren or children of these satraps uh, or of these high officials. He cannot allow them to uh, uprise against him in the future. And so he takes that. Uh, a decision which we find so hard to stomach to put uh, their wives and children also 
into the lion's den. It's perhaps the worst part of the story, isn't it? Um, and, um, but what's interesting in this um, is that uh, as soon as they're thrown in to the pit, uh, they are torn apart uh, and their bones are crushed and broken before they hit the ground. That shows you the hunger and the ferocity and the tenacious appetite of these creatures, these lions. It shows that they were violent. It shows that, you know, this thing that happened with Daniel is utterly miraculous. The mouths of these lions were stopped by this angelic being. And here again, we, we see it as an angel and and I believe in Daniel 3, it's an angel there as well. God intervenes. He sends an angel to protect. You know, we read in Psalm 91, don't we, about the angels being there to protect us so that you do not strike your foot against a stone. God sends angels to protect us. And here the angels are protecting, or the angel. There's a miraculous power. Uh, the violence and hunger of these lions is locked down by a miraculous power. Let's make no mistake. God delivers and he rescues. He performs signs and wonders. And Darius makes a decree, doesn't he? That in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. He makes a royal decree that the people in his sphere, the people in his empire, are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. You know, Darius sends Daniel to tremble before ferocious lions. But afterwards, Darius sends the people to tremble and fear before the Lion of Judah. There's this connection between these, this imagery of lions. You know, the Lion of Judah, which that language would have been at play. Daniel would have understood this language, the Lion of Judah. And, you know, Darius has this in sort of experience not dissimilar to, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. You know, he sees the true and living God. And then he's, why is it that he says that the people are to tremble before the Lion of Judah? Because, he says, he, the God of Daniel, is the living God enduring forever his kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end he delivers and rescues he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions you know what is significant in all of this so what 
what what is the thing that we can take away there's a very obvious message there isn't there that we've heard time and time again um, and it's the same as is as Daniel chapter 3 we cannot afford to bow down to anything in front of our own living God he has to be first we cannot entertain you know idolatry we cannot allow ourselves to succumb to the things in our environment that may cause us to lose sight of who he is our vision of the true and living God has to be that he rescues and he saves he delivers and he saves he performs signs and wonders what are the situations in our lives where we feel pinged up against the wall you know for Daniel he had to face the lion's den the most fearsome thing he cannot get out of this all he's got is relying on the God who saves that's all he has the God who performs signs and wonders. And he's seen it happen throughout Israel's history. And that's all he has to hold on to in this situation. What are the circumstances that are impossible in our lives? You know, Daniel faced a number of impossible circumstances. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego faced impossible circumstances. Throughout scripture, we see these characters face impossible circumstances but what happens time and time and time and time again the God of the impossible breaks through the lion of Judah comes and rescues Daniel from ferocious lions the God who reveals himself in the burning bush rescues Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego from the burning fiery furnace you know, when you pass through the fire, you will not be burnt. The one who walks on water creates a path through the Dead Sea. Uh, not the Dead Sea, sorry, through the Red Sea. He creates a path through the Red Sea. Impossible circumstances to get Israel into the promised land. The God of the impossible does the impossible so that his promises will always be realized once he has committed to a course of action the king of kings cannot stop he is committed to that path and he will do what it takes to ensure that outcome what does that mean in our society today i don't know how you're feeling um, given boris johnson's announcements on sunday evening and you know out throughout this week we've been hearing a little bit more about what that means uh, but it does look like we're going to be doing something different for some time. How long will it be before we can meet together, you know, all of us in the church space again? I, I think it's going to be some time. And so we have to think about what might feel difficult. James was talking earlier, wasn't he, about how how do we do things together, you know, um, you know, and, and you get this opportunity to send a video in so that we can see each other, you know, because we want to find ways of making it easier to be isolated. But 
it might feel, that itself might feel impossible to us. Maybe it's creating other impossible situations. Maybe the circumstances of our work are impossible. Maybe we feel that the circumstances of having to educate our children at home are impossible. Or maybe we're going to have, you know, two children back at school and two children at home. That's going to be our situation in our family. And like, how on earth are we going to navigate that? I don't know. It, it might be that you're thinking, I can't keep going on having the children home every single day because it's so much work. I don't know what it is that is hemming you in. Maybe it's the simple reality of the four walls of the room you're in or the walls of your home, however many there are. But feeling hemmed in, feeling isolated, because obviously some in our community, and it might be you, are doing this alone. And that must be so, so painful. I, I can't begin to imagine what that's like. So what are we going to do with this? How are we going to ask and invite the God of the impossible to rescue and deliver us? How are we going to invite him? And I'm not saying it's like being thrown in the lion's den. But it's applying this reality in, into uh, whatever the situation is that we are experiencing. And we are experiencing something unique in history, uh, certainly in modern history for us, aren't we? And, you know, what are the things that we can ask the Lord to do the signs and the wonders for us? How many times has the Lord come through in Scripture? How many times has he come through in our own lives? When we look back at the journey of our lives, the stories of deliverance, the stories of healing that we've seen, but now we might be perhaps struggling in our homes alone or, or we're struggling with the intensity that life feels right now or we're struggling with the uncertainty of future work and whatever that looks like. Uh, you know, the different circumstances that many of us are facing. Or perhaps we're in that vulnerable group and, and maybe we're thinking, goodness me, when can I, re you know, return to a life that feels more normal? We are all facing different realities right now. But we all have a relationship with the God of the impossible and he still has one last move and he always will. What is that move going to be for us here today? What I want to do right now, I'm going to come forward so hopefully we'll stay in focus. As we do this, because we can't do, uh, you know, fire tunnels and, and that sort of thing, I want to offer you effectively a one man fire tunnel and I'm going to be wherever, however you're listening to this, whether you're watching this on a TV with friends, uh, well we're probably not friends, but with family um, or maybe you've got others living with you or, or whether you're watching on a device or, or whether you're on your own, however your, your household is right now. I want to offer a, a one man fire tunnel and I'm just going to sit like this. I'm going to sit like this and pray and I'm going to pray in tongues. I'm going to shakalaka it 
and maybe you want to pass in front of your TV or your computer. Maybe you want to take your um, device and hold it sort of like this and um, you know, imagine you're going through a fire tunnel. Maybe you want to walk around your room with your phone over your head. I don't know. However this works for you. Maybe if there's more than you know, two or three of you, you can form your own little tunnel um, at home in, in your family if you have that um, capacity in your homes. But I'm going to pray and just release the God of the impossible over you right now. And then we're going to go into communion. Let me pray. I'm going to start by praying in tongues um, and then I'm just going to pray whatever comes. So here we go. Holy Spirit, release your fire. Father, release your fire right now. We know that you are the God of the impossible. And over our church family, as they pass in front of their televisions or their computer screens, as they pass in front of their devices, their tablets, whatever they're streaming this through, I just release the power of your Holy Spirit right now. And I declare over you that the God of the impossible is coming through for you. The God of the impossible has in mind to come through for you. The God of the impossible is in your living rooms right now. He is with you right now. And I declare over you encounter with the living God. I declare over you right now fire fall upon you. The fire of heaven, the fire of God fall upon you now. May you know his presence. May you know his power upon you. And may hope rise in your heart. May hope rise in your spirit. I just release a a, a fireball of hope, a fireball of your spirit. Fire of God be upon you. Fire of God flow within you. Rivers of the living God well up within you right now as the God of the impossible encounters you and brings hope to whatever the impossible situation is. And I declare over you that impossible situations are bowing at the name of Jesus. What feels impossible... Jesus says over it, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And I release hope and life and power and release the fire of the Holy Spirit into your homes this morning that you may know his joy, his hope, his life and his peace. Because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you, because guess what? He made you awesome. He made you his son. He made you his daughter and he created you awesome because that is your destiny. That's who he has called you to be. Yes, it involves walking in humbleness like Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. But because they knew who they were, because they knew they were sons of the living God, they could walk with humility and humbleness, knowing that the God of the impossible would come through for them. So know that in your homes this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.
I hope and pray this week that you guys reconnect with hope, reconnect with life, reconnect with joy, because I, you know, I can, in a sense, feel the pain, the, the, the concern, the fear that for some have been going through right now, or the loneliness, and I wish it wasn't that way. But the God of the, impo- the, God of the impossible is with us this morning, and he's with us every moment of our day. So let's take that thought into communion as we uh, transition to that now. So as we take the bread and the wine this morning, let the Holy Spirit still move among you, among us. I, I just sense his presence so strongly here right now in this environment. And I, I really pray and hope that you're experiencing that too. Um, because there's something about coming to take the bread and the wine when we are so aware of his presence with us. Um, now, if, if you want to join in and take the bread and wine, uh, you can either do that afterwards, um, uh, that's fine, or you can grab some uh, where in your homes right now, a bit of bread and um, some wine or, or some fruit juice, um, and we can do that together. Totally up to you, either way. But um, I'm going to do this very simply today. So I'm going to pray, uh, going to bless the sacraments, and then we'll receive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you that he went to that cross. And that on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave you thanks And then he gave it to his disciples, saying, take this, all of you. And we break this bread to share in the body of Christ. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup of wine. And he gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which was shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. And Lord, as we take the bread and the wine this morning, may it be life to our bodies. And as we eat and drink, this bread and this wine. May your Holy Spirit come and bring out that new sense of sanctification, of connection with you. May the bread and the wine this morning uh, bring that sort of uh, even closer sense of connection we have with you. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come in greater power as we receive the bread and the wine this morning. So if you want to join in with me now, we'll take the bread, the body of Christ.
And if you're doing that with a few people, you might want to just hit pause. And uh, we're now going to take the wine. The blood of Christ shed for you. And so, Father, we thank you for feeding us with the body and the blood of Christ. And as we go from uh, this stream into whatever the rest of the day holds for us, may we go uh, so aware of who we are in Christ, so aware that you are the God of the impossible, that you turned the ultimate impossible situation around, that we were separated from our Father in heaven. And through the Lord Jesus, that situation was turned around. The impossible became possible. And we now have uh, intimacy with the Father. And we thank you for it. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to... Uh, Send us out into the world, filled with power from on high. In Jesus' name, Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of Christ, Amen.